Stay tuned next for Universal Perspectives with Chris Skyhawk. This message of hope across the frontier to your door. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chris Skyhawk on KZOX with our, my show tonight, Universal Perspectives. Of course, as many of you know, I'm doing a series entitled Surviving Late Stage Capitalism. What's next? My guest tonight is Joel Preston Smith. Before I get to Joel, I want to I want to follow on what Rich said and thank all of you who helped us with our building fund. I know you've heard this from many people, but we are well and truly honored here at KZYX. And the trust and the confidence that you show to us here and the and your community radio station. So thank you for that. Okay, my guest tonight is Joel Preston Smith. Joel, good evening. Hi, good evening, Chris. Yes. Um, so, Joel, <clears throat> we have a mutual friend, Adam Stevenson, who's connected us. And I should let you know that Joel and I have not talked before. I know him. We've been emailing, and I've been on his website. I usually like to do a pre-interview interview with people, but we were not able to synchronize our schedules. And yesterday, of course, the phones all collapsed. So we're, this is the first time I've actually talked to Joel. Now, Joel, I would like to you tell tell us here in Mendocino County a little about yourself, about your work. I know you've done a lot of photojournalism work. You've been in many places around the world writing articles and doing photojournalism. Can you tell us a little more, please? Um, well, you pretty much described it. I'm a writer and an artist, and I've done some disaster management medical relief work and things like that. I would like to start, I know that you were in Iraq, and you wrote a book called Night of 1,000 Stars. And tell us a little bit about your experience in Iraq. Uh, I was there twice, and I went the first time uh, prior to the war, and I was there for two months, and I, this was when Saddam Hussein was still in power, and I stayed in a hotel that, you know, all the journalists uh, that were present were kind of under observation, and I mainly traveled around uh, Baghdad and some of the surrounding towns just photographing people in their sort of ordinary lives and I ultimately got kicked out I was accused of uh, being an American spy uh, for the military and the article was published on the front page of the national newspaper naming me as a spy and so I got uh, kind of railroaded out, and then I came back in again in about two months after that in July, and it was freer to travel. And again, I just I primarily spent time with Iraqis, uh, you know, just ordinary citizens, and then some time uh, on military bases and uh, patrolling with U.S. troops. So you you would be out on patrols with the men with the soldiers. Um, I spent about maybe close to three weeks with U.S. troops on a couple of military bases in Iraq. So is there is there anything you would like to tell us about that experience, what you saw there? Well, I would say that I've never been treated better anywhere in the world, and I just crazy in love with the people. They were just amazing hosts, if you will, even though, you know, I am a citizen of the country that was killing Iraqis. Uh, they still treated me like a king, really. Um, there were times, you know, periods of up to like a week where I didn't even have to buy food because people refused to take my money. Taxi drivers wouldn't take my money. Um, yeah, people would run out of their houses onto the street when they saw me and invite me in, you know, for a meal or for tea to meet their family, uh, things like that. So it was it really wasn't the experience that I was expecting. I was expecting to 
see a lot of hostility. And, you know, I did see some primarily when I was with U.S. troops. But it's very different, you know, when you're alone and you're on your own. Um, they, they treat you incredibly well. So were you, uh, your second time there, were you still in danger since you had been called a spy? Well, people uh, knew about it that knew me, Iraqis, uh, that had seen the paper that I had you know, developed uh, friendships with when I was there the first time. And they asked me if it was true, and, and I said absolutely not. And the reason, I think one of the primary reasons that happened was because I got angry at the uh, minder system. So a minder was an Iraqi official who was assigned to you. And if you went out uh, as a reporter, you know, if you're going to do something more than just sort of like walk around the block or something for the hotel that you were staying at, they wanted a minder with you. And um, I had asked to photograph uh, a home for, for kids with Down syndrome. There was an Iraqi woman who had a child who had Down syndrome and there were no services anywhere in the country. So people told me at the time that child was born, and this woman knew of other Iraqi parents with children who had Down syndrome. And so she started a center in her own home and ultimately had about 120 kids with Downs, and I wanted to write about her, but they denied me permission. And... Um, I started leaving the hotel like at 2 in the morning and things like that to escape the minders. And, you know, they weren't very happy about it, and understandably so. Um, and that, uh, I think that primarily is the reason that I got kicked out. So as you traveled around, were you in, uh, were you in zones that were battle, battle zones at the time? I'm sorry, Chris, I couldn't understand the question. I'm sorry. Were you, as you traveled around Iraq, were you actually in war areas where there was battles going on? Uh, yes. Um, you know, one, one time in particular. And you generally wouldn't uh, arrive at a battle because battles didn't last very long. They were just sort of like, you know, shoot and run kind of uh, actions. But, yeah, I got... I got shot at some and bombed and stuff. You also, <clears throat> where do you where where did you publish your photos? Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm from West Virginia, so I published some in uh, at at the time was the Charleston Daily Mail and in the Irish Times. And other than other than that, and a few random places. Uh, the photographs are, are in the book I wrote about the war, which is uh, Night of a Thousand Stars and other portraits of Iraq. What was your what was your personal experience in terms of you say you were treated so hospitably, even though it was our country that had inva invaded Iraq. How did that influence you personally? Uh... It's hard to describe, but I'd say that guilt and sadness and shame would be the main feelings that I felt. Um, I was thinking about, and, and this is a memory I have pretty often, I was at the University of Baghdad, and I was at a faculty dinner. It was like almost kind of like a potluck outdoors, and I was standing in line, and people kept saying, like, you know, no, go ahead of me, go ahead of me. And I'm looking around at their faces, and this was prior um, to the war starting. And I was looking at them, and, you know, they're smiling, being kind, and kind of def deferential. And I'm looking at them and thinking, you know, some of you are going to be dead um, very soon. And um, I'm just overwhelmed, you know, with sadness. Wow. Because I couldn't see any particular reason to harm any of them. And they were really decent, good people. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, I'll shift from Iraq, because I know you've been other places, too. 
I was very touched. I was on your website today. You spent some time in Rwanda. Yes. You wrote a beautiful essay uh, called The White Vampire. Can you tell our listeners what that was about? Uh, yes. I went to Rwanda with um, a group at the time. It was called Med- uh, Northwest Medical Teams, which was headquartered in Portland, Oregon. And I ended up there going on the medical relief team because I had done uh, some work for the group when I was a spokesperson for Oregon Health and Sciences University. They had brought a child from Moldova who had a kind of rare bone disorder for surgery, and the medical teams international didn't have a spokesperson at the time, and so I did uh, public relations with media for both them and Oregon Health Sciences University and Shriners Hospital, where you know, where I was working. And they asked me, you know, if you are ever interested in traveling, you know, you're welcome to go uh, on one of our teams as a logistician. So, you know, a person basically that that solves logistics problems um, and also does journalism. So I went to Rwanda at the end of the Civil War, and I worked at uh, Kibagora Hospital which is on the shores of Lake Kivu. And um, it was, again, just, you know, a really sad time. Um, There was a place on the grounds of school where uh, teachers had killed their Tutsi pupils. And um, the feeling was just like uh, everybody was a ghost. You know, you'd look at people, and they're just so hollowed out. Um, by the by, that civil war, and I did logistics. I did. I wrote about the experience, and um, and photographed. Well, we'll we'll keep on moving around the planet because you've been everywhere. You also at Standing Rock with the with the people with the Dapple the Dakota Access Pipe. Got angry with a couple of uh, Native American women that were part of the film crew, and he behaved in a way that was really hostile, violent toward them. And I told him that he would have to apologize to the women, or I would I was going to quit the film crew. And he would not apologize, so I quit. All three women that were on the film crew quit, and he was left by himself. But it was going to take me uh, a few days to find a ride to go back to Portland, and I started volunteering with the medical council because um, I have six different FEMA certifications. So I figured, you know, in the meantime, I'll just sort of do disaster management work. Put those to use? Because, I'm sorry, say again? I said you would put those, those FEMA certificates to use? Yes, I, I put that training to work, and um, I had worked in a few other national and international disasters, so I thought, you know, I'll just be useful in this way until I go back home. But the need was enormous um, for disaster management because it was, it's what it really was, it's kind of a low-grade disaster where you have people, um, thousands and thousands of people, uh, without any kind of fixed shelter, no running water, um, limited access, uh, to other just kind of basic necessities, and a lot of potential for disease transmission and um, things like that. So as I stayed, and I just kept staying longer and longer, um, my responsibilities kept increasing until um, I was named uh, the emergency shelter director by the uh, tribe, the Cannonball District specifically of the tribe. Mm. So um, as far as I know, I was the only white person that had a a formal 
uh, role with the tribe, and I managed the emergency shelter in Cannonball with the help of quite a few other people, and we ran it under um, the FEMA incident management system as though, you know, it were a FEMA-type disaster. We set the structure that way. How did you, how did you pro- procure resources to run that shelter? How did I get the resources to run yeah. it? Was that the question? Yeah, how, where did the resources come from? Well, we had food donations, and, you know, it's a standing uh, building. It was primarily uh, a recreation center, but it was also there uh, designated as emergency shelter for uh, the really harsh winters in North Dakota. But it hadn't been used uh, in that way for quite a long time, so I had a... Uh, a, there was already a pantry that existed, and then I converted it into a medical supply unit, you know, with a locked door so the controlled medications and things like that could be stored safely, and built a um, patient care area in the gymnasium, and um, had a lot of help from carpenters and from the team that I worked with that were prim- primarily women, that were the kind of the different divisions, commanders. Well, that, that sounds like quite an operation. It's flying by the seat of your pants, sounds like. It was. It was very much flying by the seat of your pants. It's a good way to just describe mm-hmm. it. Yes, I, I, where, we, where I live, I was living in Albion, which is a little town south of Fort Bragg, where I am now. And there was some young, some young people there, who were going out to to the to the camp there, and we were. They were going. They were loading up their trailer, their flatbed trailer, with wood stoves, old wood stoves that people were donating, <laughs> taking mm-hmm. it out to you guys out there. Yeah, there were an enormous number of donations, um, millions of dollars donations. Um. I, have you also spent some time in Palestine? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I had always wanted to um, spend time in Israel and Palestine. So when I got kicked out of Iraq, you know, because I was basically so close, um, I got a two-week visa, visa to uh, go into Israel and Palestine. And once again, I just primarily um, walked around photographing and talking with people and uh, got to see, you know, in a really tangible and brutal way how bad Palestinians are treated. It's uh, eye-opening. Please do, do tell us what you saw there. One of, the, one of the things that strikes me the most is the way that the government of Israel makes it very difficult for Palestinians to live their lives. And, you know, we're not talking about um, particular kind of brutality toward terrorists. We're just talking about ordinary people. And uh, there's a system like in Hebron, for example, in in that town where uh, Israeli bulldozers will randomly construct blockades uh, around the city by piling up dirt mounds that are like half the size of a house, just pushing dirt over the road so that Palestinians can't get out, so that they can't go to their jobs, they can't go shopping, um, it's not easy to get to a hospital, those kind of things. And Palestinians would show up shovels and dig their way out, uh, or they would back a truck up with um, food and medicine on one side of the blockade, dig a path to it, and then sort of like a fire brigade, you know, bucket by bucket, transfer uh, food down the line to get it inside the city. And um, 
I was in, my God, I was interrogated for three hours for arriving in a bus that I chose to get on, which was the Arab bus. I mean, the, you know, the segregation is that distinct. When you arrive, when you come from Jordan and go into Israel, you have two choices if you're going by road. You can ride the Arab bus or you can ride the Jewish bus. And when I left out of uh, Amman, Jordan, on the way, I chose the uh, the Arab bus, and they wanted to know, you know, did I have friends? Was I working for anyone? Um, you know, how did I feel about Jews? Who was this? The IDF was it interrogating you? Yes. Okay. Correct. But the mere fact that you could feel comfortable in the presence of Palestinians was enough to get you interrogated, you know. And I was just blown away by that. Palestinians live with it every day um, and and have, you know, for some 75 years. But to be present, to be a witness to seeing how badly they're treated is, uh, is another thing altogether. Did you? I want to tack back a little bit to Rwanda. I don't. Mm-hmm. Did I don't know what you dove into specifically the articles I mentioned. The white vampire. What happened to that girl? You had to make her laugh. She had pneumonia. Uh, yeah. So the uh, the story behind um, what's called a white vampire story, which was uh, originally published in a literary magazine called Gobshite Quarterly, is that. Um, a lot of the kids that were coming in, uh, they were coming from Burundi and other areas, and they're mostly Hutu refugees from the war. And the war started when uh, Hutu militiamen began killing Tutsi, who were kind of largely seen as allies of the West. Uh, they're physically distinct from... Uh, the Hutu. They're taller, thinner, they have uh, features that are more European. And so when, uh, after some 800,000 Tutsi were killed, and most of the rest had fled, when the U.S. uh, began aiding the Tutsi and overthrew the Hutu militia, then the refugees started streaming back in to Rwanda. And, you know, they had walked uh, for easily 100, 150 miles. And some of the, you know, the children, uh, and there are people born while they're coming back into the country. And babies, you know, just a few days old, some just a few years old. And so they're arriving in pretty poor shape, you know, underfed. Um, and some, sometimes with malaria, with pneumonia, things like that. So uh, a nurse taught me how to do kind of rudimentary respiratory therapy, um, and I was doing that in the hospital, and, you know, kids are um, dying, and I got uh, kind of frustrated because... The nurse had told me, you know, you're you're really being too gentle. If the patient has one has uh, pneumonia, you have to make them cough. So there was this one uh, little girl. She's about four years old. I couldn't get her to cough, and I started uh, doing this thing when her mother wasn't looking, where I would show my teeth and act like I was a vampire and stretch my arms out like, you know, I was going to, like, claw her. And it worked in getting her to cry. And it part of that story is about, you know, this kind of moral dilemma that you have about doing things like that, like, you know, intentionally terrifying a child just to get them to cough. But if you can, maybe they live because they'll start coughing up you know, the gunk that's in their lungs. Mm. And she recovered. And 
um, she left with her mother. And, uh, you know, I, I think about that again sometimes, too. Just the absurdity, you know, of tormenting a child um, to get them to cough. Um, but with the knowledge that if you fail, if you can't terrify them, they're going to die. Well, Joel, you have certainly lived a very rich life and been in many intense situations. I'm curious uh, why, in your own, in, in the analysis of yourself, why do you why do you do these things? I thought about that a lot um, <laughs> over the years, but not really until um, Iraq. And I think it really comes comes down to. Um, my dad and kind of trying to fight him in a way or trying to prove that I was brave. So my dad was um, an alcoholic and a very violent alcoholic. And one time in particular, I had strep throat. I was about eight years old and I was coughing a lot. And uh, he came into my room. I don't know what time it was. It was like maybe 10 midnight, something like that, and he pulled me out of bed by the hair of my head, and he was a very strong man, and he held me at the end of his arm, and he was punching me in the face, and my mom um, came in behind him, and she was trying to pull him away from me, and his belt came off, she was tugging at his pants, and she just sort of instinctively took the belt and started hitting him in the head with it, and he lost his balance, fell over, hit his head on the end of the bed, you know, the wooden bedboard, and knocked himself out. And I never had the courage to stand up to him, and he died of a heart attack when I was 13. And, you know, it sort of gave me this uh, sense of defiance for anybody that would threaten me. You know, what would come up is this survival instinct, um, but also a desire to beat them in some way. And by beat, I don't mean physically beat, I mean win, you mm. know, to outmaneuver them in some way or um, to cow them if, you know, that was what it was going to take. And... Um, the thing that triggered it that made me feel like I finally understood why I do these things was when I was in Rwanda and the uh, medical team that I was with supposedly had visas to enter the country that they got denied once we are you know, in the airport after we had landed and they told us we weren't going to be able to, to uh, take formally enter the country, and we weren't going to be able to do the work that we had come to do. And so um, we kind of held a discussion about how we could come up with a solution, and a nurse uh, was with an entirely different group, was there and overheard us, and she said, well, you know, the person that you need to talk to is you need to talk to the Rwandan Minister of Health. And we got um, the information about which building he worked in. It was only maybe no more than three blocks away. And I said, you know, I'll do it. I'll go talk to him and see if we can get visas. And so I went um, out of the building and uh, followed the directions and made it to the back side of the building where uh, he worked. And... There was a staircase, sort of like a fire escape, but, you know, fixed uh, to the side of the building that she had to walk up to, and I had to go up to the third floor in order to get in. And at the landing for the third floor, I was looking up, and I could see two Hutu men, um, one of which had an AK-47. And they looked down, and they looked at me, and, you know, I could, just, I could feel and see the hostility. And they looked up and down the street after they saw me. And it felt to me like 
they were thinking, like, is anybody going to see if we do what we want to do? And there wasn't anybody else on the street, as far as you could see. And just almost instantly, my mind started working out the details about what I would need to do to get past them. And I sped up. And at the moment I sped up, it kind of hit me, like, why would you do this? Um, Why? I mean, I, I felt excited about it, you know, and I was thinking about, like, how I will take the rifle away from the first guy and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. And and it hit me, this is about your dad, you know, this is about um, standing up to violent people and, uh, and getting past them. Mm-hmm. And I walked up there and... You know, um, I sort of stared them down. They stared me down, and I just walked through them and opened the door and went inside, and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And I talked to the minister and and got visas for us, and the work went on. But it was really interesting, you know, that kind of sudden shock where you realize that you're not made in a normal way. You know, where you have feelings that you shouldn't have if you're, you know, a reasonable person. Yes, that's very intriguing to me that you sped up and walked towards them quicker. (laughs) Yeah, because it was like there was a sense of eagerness. um, And and it hit me at the same time that, you know, that's just sick. Um, You should turn around. You should leave. there's no reason to feel happy about what could be a really horrific thing. Mm. So, so part of this is that you have you've had a personal challenge in terms of rectifying your situation with an abusive father. But also, I'm very touched as you have moved around. The very human, the very human element of your discoveries and your photographs and your stories here—they're very touching. Thank you. Yeah. It seems that it seems to me that there's a path of heart here that we're talking about. I wonder your thoughts about that. Um, a path of heart. Yeah. You mean things like self-discovery and all that. Well, you're discovering a lot. You're really working in the ground of the horror that humans go through and putting yourself in those situations where you could be physically, you could be killed. You just mentioned that. And, you know, you could just find yourself in the middle of a firefight. And yet you're finding incredible little gems of beauty in these really trying situations. Yeah, I think... I think that if I um, was only there, like, for photographs or, you know, to interview some folks and repeat what they said, you know, to an audience, it wouldn't trouble me as much as it does. But, you know, in pretty much like all of these situations and travels and disasters, um, you see a lot of suffering that there's... There's no justifiable reason why people should suffer um, as they do, and so there's a you know there's an anger about the injustice of it, and that has driven me too. Um, but I would say the the thing that I love the most about the work is um, learning about people and doing it in a in a kind of, a, you know, an exotic way, um, because you're not there as a tourist, for example, you know. I didn't, I didn't go to those places to shop or, right. or take, to pictures. Be able to take pictures and show them at a slideshow to my friends or something right. like that. Um, you know, I, w- I would say um, that, for instance, you know, a lot of the work that I was doing was being used for fundraising for relief groups. So, um, 
on the one hand, I, I could say, like I said in my book about the Iraq War, that I was a grief tourist, you know, present to see people suffer. Um, but on the other hand, I would say that I was doing something constructive that went beyond just simply, you know, um, describing the tragedy. That um, I was also doing something to address it. And I, I think so. I mean, I know um, that I've that I've done good. But part of the reason for having done it at all is, you know, it's tied up in this really uh, sad and tragic and ridiculous um, effort to prove that I'm not a coward. Well, I, I will vouch to you, you are not a coward. I think our, our listeners... Well, we'll all 100% agree you are not a coward. So, um, uh, you know, the subtitle of my show right now is Surviving Late Stage Capitalism. What's next? I don't mean to put you on the spot as far as being a philosopher, but I'm curious, as a person who has seen so much of the horror of the world, and everybody knows we're in a real crisis right now with a lot of wars and climate change and different things, I'm curious what you see is next for the human family. Do you mean do we decline or ascend, that kind of thing? Yeah, just for your personal experience, and what's the vision you hold for us as a human family? You know, I'm just in awe of how beautiful, capable, um, and kind people can be. And I would say that uh, in order to grow that and in, in order to find ourselves in less conflict, that um, we need to be much more inclined toward solving conflict nonviolently. So I've done some writing for the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, and I think that is really the most awesome organization on the planet um, in teaching people how to resist corrupt governments and dictatorial governments. Can you say the name of that org, org again, organization? Yep. It's what is called that? the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, and its headquarters is in Washington, D.C. And they have an enormous amount of resources to help people understand the strategy and tactics of nonviolent resistance. And I would say that uh, really the preeminent thing that would address these conflicts would be an end to patriarchy. Mm. Uh, tell us a little more. I know you've written some essays. Tell us a little bit more what you, the essays you write about, your subjects. Uh, I haven't been doing much writing um, for really a couple of years because I'm taking care of my mom who has uh, dementia, and she's bedridden. She's 83 years old. Um, and so in some ways it almost seems like you know journalism has ended for me. Um, part of the circumstances that I live in is my mom, um, because she has dementia, screams a lot. And um, I, I imagine some people have found ways to deal with it. I, my mind just sort of goes to mush um, in the screaming episodes. And, um, you know, I feel stressed almost all the time because... She's either screaming or I'm thinking, you know, she's going to start screaming. But I used to write about, uh, gosh, different things. I would write about the places and the people that I traveled to. I'd write about um, strategic nonviolence. I wrote about um, agricultural science and kind of food production. Um, for a couple of different magazines on the West Coast. And 
mainly stuff about social justice, about racism, things like that. And I started doing uh, data visualization a couple of years ago. I haven't uh, done much of it lately, but looking at... Uh, what does that mean? Data visualization? What's that term mean? So, data vi- this is interactive data visualization. So, for example, you take a data set. Um, let's say it's voting behavior in Afghanistan, which is one of the stories that uh, I wrote. And you look at women's voting behavior versus male voting behavior. And um, you have to talk, of course, about how difficult it is for women to vote in Afghanistan and the risks that they take uh, versus the risks that men take. And you build it in such a way that people can, like, mouse over you know, a data point, a particular point in the timeline, for example, and get more information about that day or that subject. Um, so it's work with uh, statistics and uh, kind of just like mainstream uh, journalism with images and with words. And you um, kind of vivisect a subject a way that you hope people better understand um, you know, what uh, what the topic is and why you think it's important. As you as you travel, as you have done these photo essays and these uh, and these actual essays, how do you see your work as influencing the direction that we are taking as human family? You know, like, what is my planetary influence? Yeah. I'd say nil, except for the people um, that I've interacted with directly or, you know, for um, people who have benefited in some way through um, fundraising that's associated with those uh, photographs and essays. I think uh, it's, it's kind of hard to tell, you know. Um, let's say that uh, someone lives because of some work that you've done. You know, don't necessarily know beyond that um, what they've done with their lives. And I'd have to have an awful lot of information, more than I do, to be able to say um, I've had much of an impact. But if I think about <clears throat> If I think about individual people... Um, and I think about you know, some way in which I helped them or they helped me. You that's, must feel, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you, you must feel a tremendous sense of pride and humility that with some of, the things, some of the things you have done, like with that girl with the white vampire story. I'm sure there must be other things you have done that you carry with you. Yes. Um, in, in your heart and... Whatever... Obviously, I think about sort of like, you know, what's what's the preeminent moment of my life? Uh, there was a day in Rwanda, a Kibora hospital, when uh, the nurses that were on the medical team that I was with uh, declined to be in surgery. Uh, there were three sec- C-sections that needed to happen that day because all the women were going to deliver breech birth and um, the surgeon was going to have to do it by himself, and I volunteered to um, replace a nurse. And they had a very good reason for refusing to do surgery, and that was that the HIV rate at the time was about 34% of the adult population. So the chance of getting stuck with needle, um, given that none of them were were surgical nurses, and you really have to know like how to keep your hands out of the way. And you know, it's like chore- choreography, where the nurse is moving his or her hands in a particular way in concordance with the surgeon. But they didn't want to get HIV, and I didn't want the women and the babies to die. So I said, "I'll do it." And when I say like, "I'll do it." I mean, follow the doctor's orders, you know. I think 
clamp this artery and, um, you know, hold this for me and, you know, reach me a, a towel and those kind of things. And so those three births and the last one, I took the baby out of the womb um, by its feet. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would say that's, you know, um, the thing that I'm proudest of was yeah, being there and being part of that. Yeah, I can. Yeah, that sent, sent a beautiful shot of energy through my heart as you told that, as you lifted the baby out by the feet. That's really touching. And it was named after me, which is oh. nice. <laughs> kind of weird. So there, yeah. so there was some little Rhonda kid walking around right now that's named Joel? What's your saying? Exactly. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> we, hope, we hope he's walking around doing good in the world in some way. Well, Joel, uh, we're going to have to ask for some closing comments because we're coming near 8 o'clock. So I was, would like to hear from you. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners here in Mendocino County? Um, goodness. Oh, and of course, please share really, your website with people. I feel really fortunate um, that I've gotten to do the things that I've gotten to do and that uh, people like Ada, who you mentioned earlier, are part of that. I had no Native American friends and didn't understand uh, nearly anything about the culture until I uh, worked at Standing Rock. And, you know, Ada and I um, worked together there, and we've come out of that with a really great friendship. And um, the people that I've most strongly connected with in, you know, other countries and other cultures are uh, really the most beautiful part of it. Uh, I have a lot of sadness over the memories and the violence, but I also have a lot of joy for the people that I got to meet and that I got to work with. So it might all sound kind of dire and um, self-destructive, but maybe, you know, for people who are just better inclined and have better motivations than I did, um, it, it's a great way to learn about the world, uh, doing this kind of journalism, you know, where the, the primary goal is um, to help people in some way. Well, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for you being with us here tonight. And also... Oh, can can I you, say one more thing, Chris? Yeah, please I, do. You want to we tell me your website, too. But, Go but ahead. I, I promised uh, that I would mention it in some way. So one of the things that I'm doing now in lieu of doing kind of mainstream journalism, is I'm helping edit the English language pages for a website for political prisoners in Belarus. Um, uh, it is dedicated to making it a little more difficult for Lukashenko, uh, the dictator in Belarus, to continue to imprison people and to torture people. And, uh, treat democracy activists as though they were terrorists. And I work on that site with uh, Ilya Golovskaya, who is uh, the person who primarily writes the content for the website. But I, if you're really interested in helping people, I would encourage uh, other people to uh, help people in Belarus and Russia in Ukraine um, with English language skills because it's it's something that's kind of easy to do you know versus um, getting on a plane and flying somewhere and you know being in a dangerous situation that I, w I wish more people in this country uh, were helping democracy activists in those countries and uh, it's it's uh, pretty pretty easy you just you know, you write to an organization that's doing on democracy work under a dictatorship uh, and offer to be uh, an English as a second language instructor for members of that group. And, Joe, please share with our listeners your personal website. Um, it's joelprestonsmith.com, and for the Belarus website, it's Politzek. 
N E and there it's in Russian and English. Please spell that so out for our listeners. Sure. P O L I T Z E K dot M E. Politzek dot M E. Well Joe and It's a really it's a really beautiful website and uh there are stories for the political prisoners about you know, what they do in their professional lives, why they were arrested, uh, and all of them in some way were arrested. Joel, I'm sorry. We're, we're, going to, we're going to have to cut it out now. We're almost 8 o'clock okay. here. Thank you so Understood. much for your willingness to touch the beauty and the horror of the world. It's, a, it's been lovely to talk to you. And we're going to close with a song called Walking in Power. We're, we're going to dedicate this to you, Joel. Go ahead, Rich. Hit it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for being with us. Something pulls you out of bed and puts you in your day and introduces you to everything you need along the way. It puts your finger to the flame and teaches you the burning, and you become a ripple in the river of our learning. It locks you at the gateway of your dreams until the hour you recognize you've always had the key and you are walking in power most folks can't see power unless it is in motion i see fire in your eyes to move the tide across the ocean there's a purpose in your passion there's a reason for your tears yet you dissipate your power when you ground it in your fears you will step into destiny and you can do it now or stumble blindly down your path like you don't know that you are walking in power. You are like and I am here to remind you when you take your path, you light the way for those who come behind you. There's this has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.